Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our uh, study on the book of Revelation. If you are tuning in to listen to Pope Francis, again, just a programming reminder, we have hit the pause button on what we have been doing over the last two and a half years to really focus in on the book of Revelation from one day to the next and from one week to the next until we get to the book of Revelation. We are doing a very in-depth study of the book of Revelation. And of course, this is at your request. I am simply responding to what you wanted me to treat. Now, we are in the early stages of this study, so we're not quite into the verses themselves. This is going to be a verse-by-verse study, but we really do need to work through some initial pieces so as to really set up this study for what it needs to be. And so in our first evening, we took a close look at the significance of who the author is and then the significance to dating, right? Uh, When was this book written? And so that is really where we pick up, and we pick up within the context of us talking about that phrase, coming soon right? (laughs) You know, Jesus said it. The end is near, and yet he has not, quote, come again, unquote. So what's going on? I mean, was Jesus wrong about the end of the world? This really is the question that we are, are taking up. And again, by way of resources, we are going to be leaning heavily into Michael Barber's coming soon, as well as Peter Williamson's commentary on Revelation alongside of Scott Hahn's Lamb's Supper. So what can we say about the end of the world as we know it and the importance of 70 AD, right? And the importance of 70 AD, because if we're going to respond to that question, you know, was Jesus wrong about the end of the world? We really do have to look at what was going on in 70 AD. The apocalypse, the book of Revelation, clearly teaches that Jesus is coming soon. As a matter of fact, the imminent return of Jesus is really a major theme, not only of the book of Revelation, but the entire New Testament. Yet the world keeps turning, (laughs) and over 21 centuries later, we keep praying what? Come, Lord Jesus. This question not answered in some circles has led some scholars to speculate about the delay of our Lord's coming. They argue that perhaps Jesus simply got it wrong that maybe he wasn't coming back as soon as he thought. But, but really, could this be true? I mean, <laughs> did Jesus uh, lose track of time? As some have tried to get around this problem by pointing to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, which reads what? With the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. They tried to explain that with this sense of soon, maybe Jesus was thinking long term, huh? admittedly very long-term. Unfortunately, this explanation does not make sense of our Lord's words. He tells his own contemporaries what in Matthew chapter 4, verses 29 to 30. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, 
and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then Jesus says what? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Now that's Matthew 24, verse 34. What's going on there? Well, the Greek word for generation is genoa. It refers to a period of how long? But 40 years. Since Jesus died around the year 30 AD, he predicted that all these things would take place by what? 70 AD. Okay, so this is very important. Now, this prediction seems to pose a problem. The last time you checked, I'm sure, the stars were still securely tucked away in the sky. The moon was still giving forth light, and the sun had yet to burn out, right? Nearly 20 centuries later, the world is still here. So, if Jesus said that the world would end in one generation, either he was wrong or we are misunderstanding what he meant. So what gives? Well, to understand these words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 34, we must examine how this sermon, if we're going to call this sermon, began. If we turn to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, we would see that our Lord's teaching concerning the last days began as a response to the apostles who were marveling at the splendor of the Jerusalem temple. Okay, so the temple is significant here. Let us read verses 1 to 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So our Lord's words about the last days, therefore, must be interpreted within this larger context. What does the destruction of the temple have to do with the end of the world? Okay, if we're going to answer this question right, we're going to have to go back to the senses of Scripture that I have placed an emphasis on. One of the reasons people have a hard time making sense of the Bible is that they do not realize that the Bible has several layers of meaning. And these layers of meaning are known as the four senses of sacred Scripture— and my dear friends, this is the stuff of the church fathers. I have talked about the four senses of Scripture at length on a number of occasions, but it would be right that we consider them now so that we might get a deeper understanding of what Jesus means when he talks about the temple and the temple in relationship to the world. So if we're going to understand these senses of Scripture, let us turn our attention to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is paragraph 115. According to an ancient tradition, one can distinguish between two senses of Scripture, the literal and the spiritual, the latter being subdivided into the allegorical, moral, and anagogical senses. The profound concordance of the four senses guarantees all its richness to the living reading of Scripture in the church. So to help us understand, then, the book of Revelation and the meaning of the temple, let us consider these four senses. Now again, I closed yesterday evening with a brief reflection into the literal sense, and what I want to do now is maybe expand upon that. First of all, let's clarify. 
By saying the literal sense, do we mean that everything in Scripture must be taken literally? Of course not. The literal sense refers to the literary or historical meaning intended by the authors. Okay, that's the literal sense. The literary or historical meaning intended by the authors. Our job in reading the Bible is to discover how the biblical writers intended their words to be understood. Sometimes they intended to relate historical facts. Other times they intended to write poetry. And still other times they intended to recount a parable, a story with a deeper meaning. We can't interpret every passage in the same way. Making that mistake would have unfortunate consequences and ultimately would leave us clutching at empty space. We just simply would not be able to appreciate the fullness of the particular text, the fullness as it comes to us, just not in the Spirit, but also in history. This is what I talked about yesterday evening. Take, for example, the Song of Solomon. In this book, Solomon describes his beloved. Maybe many of us have read the Song of Solomon. But have you ever thought about (laughs) the significance of reading that text within the context as we talk about it right now in the literal sense? Consider his words in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Okay, he's describing his beloved as beautiful. But how about chapter 7, verses 2 to 3? Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. How about chapter 4, verse 1, where Solomon describes his beloved's eyes as doves, that her hair looks like a flock of goats and that her teeth are like shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them is bereaved. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I described my beloved that way, I wouldn't get away with it. You see, something else is going on. Solomon didn't really mean to say that his beloved had sheep in her mouth. It's poetry. It wasn't meant to be taken Literally, we are made to understand these passages the way they were meant to be interpreted. Their literal sense, then, is the beloved's beauty, which is described poetically in metaphors. Okay? I think we can all grab hold of what's going on here. Thus, the literal sense is not always the same as the literal meaning. At the same time, we must affirm that the biblical authors often intended to relate actual historical events. In point of fact, the church teaches that the Gospels recount what Jesus really did and really taught. So just as we can wrongly interpret some passages too literally, we can also fall into the trap of spiritualizing, if you will, other passages by saying that they do not describe real events. I know there is a tendency for some of us to do that, that maybe the multiplication of loaves and fishes with some bus or caravan coming in to hand these loaves and fishes in. And the miracle was that they kept very little for themselves and that they were able to share so much. Well, that's nice, and certainly the people there were sharing, but not for a second are we to interpret the multiplication of the loaves and fishes as something that is exclusively about sharing. No, Jesus performed a very real miracle. And if we deny 
Jesus performing miracles, we find ourselves on a very slippery slope. I mean, what does Paul say? (laughs) If the resurrection didn't happen, the whole Christian faith is in vain. In so many ways, the literal sense is the foundation of all other senses. One cannot study the spiritual senses, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical, unless one begins with the literal. Pope Pius XII taught that when interpreting the Bible, the foremost endeavor should always be to discern and define clearly that sense of the biblical words, which is called the literal. That being said, the Bible doesn't work out like modern history. It gives us theological history, history from God's point of view. So in the book of Genesis, the author of Genesis is not concerned about laying out how history happened on a chronological timeline. No, the author of Genesis is first and foremost concerned with what is relevant to the fall. God works in history, but the Bible is not a history book. So the Bible's purpose isn't to tell us when the kings of every major dynasty lived, although sometimes it does in in some cases. Rather, the Bible tells a story of how God fathers his family through history. And that, my friends, is quintessential to how we are called to read sacred scripture. What's important in this line of thinking is that God is the author of all history, which he fashions for the salvation of the world. When humans write books, we use words to signify what? Realities. Think about it. Book refers to the one thing you are now holding in your hand. Chair refers to a thing in which you may be sitting on at this moment. God writes the world as men write books, except instead of using only words, he can use historical realities to signify other historical realities. An example of this would be what? Passover. There was once a real Passover in Egypt that saved Israel from real bondage, a Passover of which a real lamb was really slaughtered and eaten, okay? This historic event prefigures another moment in history, the sacrifice of Christ as what? The true Passover lamb who died to set us free from bondage to sin. As God makes historical events prefigure other events in salvation history, what does he do? He reveals himself as the Lord of history. And here we begin to tap into the spiritual sense, the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical. Now, first, the allegorical sense. What is an allegory? Well, an allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another. So the allegorical sense refers to the way in which Christ fulfills the Old Testament in himself. So the allegorical sense deals with those figures who are types of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, that Adam was a type of Christ. So the study of types or typology helps us framework what the allegorical sense is all about. The moral sense helps us to better understand how to act justly, and the anagogical sense to the way Christ brings all things to fulfillment in himself and in heaven. So taking these senses, let us apply them to the temple. The literal historical sense of the temple is the building that stood in Jerusalem, okay? Christ fulfilled the temple allegorically in himself since his body is what? Well, what does John tell us in John chapter 2, verse 21? The true temple. Paul illustrates the moral sense of the temple when he writes, 
Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Because Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit, we are called to act morally. Finally, the book of Revelation tells us how the anagogical fulfillment of the earthly temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so we can now see how temple illustrates this fourfold sense of Scripture. Now, let us turn our attention to the relationship between the temple and the world to Israel. Why did Jesus describe the end of the world when he predicted the destruction of the temple? Quite simply, my friends, the answer is connected to the way God writes the world. To ancient Israel, the temple was a miniature model of the world. When Moses built the tabernacle, a mobile temple, and Solomon built the temple itself, they did so in sevens. Seven days, seven months, seven years. Why? Well, they were imitating the way God created the world in seven days. In fact, the book of Job describes creation in terms of temple building. If you were to go to Job chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, this is what you read about. The temple is a scale model of the world. And conversely, we are made to see how the world is one giant temple. The temple meant the world to Israel, literally speaking. So my dear friends, <laughs> what's important for us to understand, if we are going to fully appreciate the significance of what's going on in the book of Revelation, is that the temple itself was the symbol of the world. For Jesus and the people of Israel in his days then, the destruction of the temple symbolized what? The end of the world. Let me say that again. The destruction of the temple symbolized the end of the world. This should help us better understand Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 2. This is why our Lord's sermons on the end of the world are always given in the context of a prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Okay? And certainly, Jesus was true to his words. Because in 70 AD, about 40 years after he ascended back into heaven, Jerusalem and its temple was destroyed. And with this event, the ritual order of the Old Testament came to a definitive end. The temple sacrifice and the Old Testament priesthood were simply, my friends, no longer possible. Jesus was right when he said <laughs> in Matthew 24, verse 34, that within one generation, the world would come to an end. Furthermore, it would be important for us to note, Christians heeded our Lord's warnings. What do we read in Luke chapter 21, verse 21? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And when we say Christians heeded our Lord's warnings, my dear friends, they heeded our Lord's warnings. Because the early Christians escaped from Jerusalem and fled to Pella just before the Roman legions arrived to besiege Jerusalem, not a single Christian perished. Moreover, our Lord's warning to flee Jerusalem can also be understood spiritually as a kind of admonishment to abandon the obsolete temple sacrifices. 
Now that he has come and has offered himself as our sacrifice, there is no longer the need for the Levitical priesthood per se. Jesus is saying, don't be attached to it. Flee. So what then about that phrase coming soon? Was Jesus mistaken? No. No. But what of the image of the sun being darkened? What of the image of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, and the stars falling from heaven? Well, we have to understand what our Lord's prophecy meant to those who heard him in the first century. The sun, moon, and stars were important for measuring what? Days, months, and years. This is how the ancients used to tell time. To say that they would fall from the sky and be darkened was like saying, what? Your time is up. Can you not begin to appreciate the significance of how we are made to interpret a particular book of the Bible when you start putting it into its proper context, especially a book that falls within the, the category of that genre that is apocalyptic, where signs and symbols represent and signify a deeper meaning? Now, what else can we say about this coming soon? Well, in the Old Testament, God's coming often entails what? His judgment. Go to Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21. For behold, the Lord is coming forth out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed upon her and will no more cover her slain. Jeremiah chapter 41, verse 13. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwinds. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. So the Jewish leaders and those who went along with them rejected Jesus and therefore would face what? God's judgment, his coming. In the end, my friends, what we are made to see is that the year 70 AD was truly a kind of second coming wherein Jerusalem was judged. It marked the end of the world as our Lord's hearers knew it. And that's why the literal sense is important. Once we appreciate the significance of the year 70 AD, we are in a much better position to understand the message of Revelation. As we have seen, it is more than reasonable to believe that the book was written sometime in the late 60s during the reign of Nero, before the cataclysmic events of 70 AD. So when John says that Jesus is coming soon, he could have very well been prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem. So if these predictions of Jesus were fulfilled in the first century, does this mean that there won't be an end of the world? I can kind of hear that question being asked now. Well, of course not. The year 70 AD is a dress rehearsal, so to speak, for the real thing. The destruction of Jerusalem symbolizes the end of the world and teaches us the lessons we need to prepare for it, does it not? Now, one last thing before we wrap up this evening's program. The Greek for coming soon is parousia. It translates as appearance, invitation. What did that mean exactly? And how was that interpreted in the first few centuries? Well, to be able to get at that question, one must go back 
to what Jesus did in the upper room. Because when Jesus was instituting the Eucharist, and he says, this is the blood of the New Testament, what was it that he was actually saying? (laughs) This is the blood of the New Testament. He was saying that I am being poured out as a sacrificial lamb, that you might now enter into a new covenant, a covenant in my blood, the covenant of relationship. I am yours and you are mine. Brothers and sisters, understand this, that for the first few centuries, before there was any New Testament book, there was first the New Testament Eucharist. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. Moreover, that's what Jesus did. Jesus never said, write this or write that. He said, do this. Specifically, do this in remembrance of me. Those words that are so essential to the Eucharistic prayer and the institution of the Eucharist. So you put this whole discussion of the second coming within the context of the Eucharist, and it makes a lot more sense. I was talking about this on another radio program, and we were making the point that we could go so far as to say that when we receive the Eucharist, the Eucharist that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, we are the second coming of Jesus to everyone around us. Now again, this does not take away from the definitive second coming of Jesus Christ, but what it does do is put this whole conversation in its proper context, that context of the Eucharist, that context of the Mass. Why do we hear this language of the Lamb being slain in Revelation 5 and in in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Because brothers and sisters, when you talk about what the whole New Testament is all about, at least as it was understood in the first few centuries, it was the Eucharist. It was the Eucharist. I'm often asked the question, Joe, where is the Mass in the New Testament? According to the first Christian teachers, the Mass, the liturgy, insofar as we call the liturgy the Eucharist, the Mass was the New Testament because Jesus Christ said, this is the blood of the New Testament. That's Mark 14, 24, by the way, that passage. I I know that's rich, and I know this closing thought might have shaken you up a little bit, but I leave you with this close because I want you thinking about what Jesus actually said and why the book of Revelation is caught up with so much of this Eucharistic language, this liturgical language, because there's so much more that is going on than meets the eye. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.